1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in LGBTQ plus Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee, and I'm a PhD candidate in Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Western University. And I'm absolutely delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Marika Sephore on her new book, Viral Cultures, Activist Archiving in the Age of AIDS, published by Minnesota University Press this year. Dr. Safour is Assistant Professor in the Information School at the University of Washington. Welcome to the New Books Network, Marika.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here and to get to be in conversation with you in particular.
1: Um, I'm absolutely thrilled. Um, As I told you over email, I I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, So could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual journey and and how it has made this book possible? Of course, it's a great question. I think uh, part of
2: what I love about podcasts like this, right, are... Uh, the opportunity to actually uh, get to tell a bit more than we often get to do within the book itself, uh, how a project came to be. And I think uh, as I was thinking through this question, uh, there's a few different kind of avenues um, by which uh, this project began. And I think some of this uh, begins kind of uh, all the way back in undergrad uh, when I uh, was very involved in activism uh, on the other side, working on reproductive rights uh, and uh, queer issues. And uh, I got very interested in how social movements work and the ways in which uh, What inspires activists to do the kind of work they do uh, from the side of working within those kinds of movements? And then uh, the other kind of place that this work really begins for me uh, is as an archivist. And I... I was fortunate enough to have my first uh, real kind of encounter both as a researcher and as a uh, person working within the archives at the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco and uh, to be intimately involved in a queer community archive. And I got very interested in questions around how we document and engage with queer histories. Because I think queer histories pose particularly kind of engaging and exciting challenges uh, for archivists and for archival practice and thinking, because some of what draws queer people and communities together in archival spaces and in other spaces is a kind of relationality to one another, a kind of affective relationality that's very difficult to document, at least in kind of Uh, the traditional kind of paper-based government-oriented archives um, by which at least kind of North American archival practice um, in a Western lens is traced. And I think for me, I'm always interested in, in bodies, in relationships, in things that are difficult to archive and how we access and engage uh, with our histories as queer people, as trans people, as uh, people who've experienced other kinds of marginalization or denials of history. And so I think the third place where this project begins though is um, as a doctoral student, those kind of interests uh, really coalesced for me uh, around affect theory. I fell into to a really deep affect theory uh, rabbit hole. I had encountered uh, Ann Sackovich's archive of feelings for the first time in undergrad, again as a master's student, and then returned to it as a doctoral student. And each time I've been so uh, profoundly moved by her work thinking about the relationships of lesbian public feelings and artistic work and archival documentation. And at the same time, I was very, I felt like I needed to understand what affect theory could bring to archival praxis and for me, uh, the work that began to interest me most was um, what might be kind of loosely called Feminist Cultural Studies of Affect, work that really engaged with the questions of what emotions do in the world. And I, in particular, uh, continue to love Sarah Ahmed's Cultural Politics of Emotion. And as I was developing a dissertation project, I thought, that uh, I might do something inspired uh, by Ahmed's work, thinking about part of what I love about the cultural politics of emotion is how it uses each of an emotion as a centerpiece in each chapter. Uh, There's a great chapter on shame, for example, and I thought I might do something similar um, about how... Uh, different emotions uh, manifested, or encountered, or implicated in, or created by LGBTQ archives, and I thought uh, that documentation of AIDS activism, which always has a messy relationship—something we can talk more about uh, if it interests you—with kind of queer history and queer studies, and LGBT studies and gay, and lesbian studies before it. Um, But I think I thought AIDS and AIDS activism in particular might be one kind of case study in a book that would take, right, that kind of inspiration of moving from a different affect or emotion uh, as a focal point. But I, of course, uh, got to uh, doing kind of early research and realized that there was a much kind of bigger story in these records and in the ways that they had been activated and engaged with and that it would do a great disservice to kind of try to cut a piece of that story into a single chapter or to even frame it particularly around a particular effect. And so This project for me is a way of bringing together uh, all of these different threads, thinking about kind of marginalized communities and social movements, thinking about how we document and the kinds of ways and the implications of how we document for ongoing political movements, for queer and trans and Uh, Indigenous people, for folks of color, for other people who have long been denied access to traditional archival spaces and who have not been kind of welcomed into some of those spaces and have created their own alternatives in many cases. But this project for me was really a way to draw together these different lines of thinking about Nostalgia, which is maybe both a feeling and a memory practice in thinking about archives, both uh, the kind of everyday practices that archivists and librarians and uh, other folks who might not use those terms to describe themselves, uh, but who do archival work uh, engage in and a way to think about right the implications always of those archives Uh, for our understandings of ourselves in the present and the ways in which uh, they shape future possibilities. And for me, that's what's so fundamentally exciting about archives is their space to engage with our relationship to the past, which always says much more about our kind of present and
1: what we might envision or make possible for the future. Right, that's... That's fascinating. Um, In the introductory chapter, you begin by highlighting Queer Dicard Collective, um, Fierce Pussies for the Record, text-based artwork, which you tell us in the book, attempts to resignify and reclaim language as well as public space for HIV AIDS. And you begin by introducing us to a prose poem, which is deeply moving and incredibly powerful. Um, For the Record is at the heart of this book. And I was wondering if you could tell us about your acquaintance with For the Record and the ways in which it has shaped this book? Thank you so much. I love this
2: question. I think um, this is one I haven't been asked before and I, uh, I'm so thrilled to be able to talk about this piece. And I, I put it in the introduction for reasons I think uh, you've begun to articulate here. Uh, because their work is so moving, it's so powerful, it engages directly with the concept of what a record is and what a record can do. And for me, uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, it ended up being uh, the opening to the book and to this story that's fundamentally about records, what they are, what they mean, how we engage with them, what they can do. And so I love uh, this piece for multiple reasons. Um, I mean, I. I love, uh, I have long been a fan of Fair Spicy's work as a queer dyke art collective. Um, And I really, it was fundamentally important to me in terms of the politics of this kind of work to put at the forefront um, collectives of queer. Artists and artists who explicitly engage with AIDS, but also to put lesbian and queer identified women uh, at the forefront of this story, because I think in AIDS worlds, uh, women, trans folks, other folks uh basically anyone who's not a gay white middle class man located in particular urban centers in the United States is often marginalized in these histories and were at times marginalized within movements themselves and so for me, uh it was important to have work like fierce Pussies at the front. I also wanted to put work. Uh, at the forefront of this project that is more contemporary because I think when talking about archives and when talking about AIDS in a North American context, we're often thinking about the past and their piece, of course, engages, right? It talks to us, it asks us to imagine a past in which people, a set of people did not Uh, die of AIDS-related causes in which they were actually here in our 2010s present to engage with us. So it deals with the past, but it's fundamentally about the present and about imagining and enacting a different kind of future and deals with AIDS very much as a contemporary reality. Uh, The prose you mentioned, right, calls out uh, in the way in which it's printed right most of the prose is black the word aids is highlighted in red Uh, and we're reminded right that if any of these people were living he she they that they would still be living with aids right aids is still an ongoing part of our realities, and something right that they're saying with this piece deserves our ongoing attention. Uh, even while in the U.S., right, we often imagine AIDS in popular culture, if we think about it at all, as being a pandemic of the past. And so this piece, for the record, fundamentally dealt with so many pieces at the heart of what I wanted to get to here and allowed me to to introduce the concept of a record, which in archival studies, the kind of sub-discipline of information studies uh, in which I was trained, right, the record is one of the kind of primary categories of like the objects of our analysis, the work we do. And so this piece that's about records was fundamentally a way to also draw together multiple audiences, right? Audiences who might be thinking more about artistic work and documentation with audiences uh, from archival and information studies, right? Who think about records in probably a kind of more literal way sense and who work with them in a different capacity every day. And I hope uh, in this book, right, to draw together audiences in information studies, in media studies, in LGBT studies, and to uh, give us a shared language here. And Fierce Pissy's work um, was such a beautiful way of doing that. I also was lucky enough to um, be thinking about their work in the context of this project uh, as and I know we'll talk more about this in a bit, but we, as I was doing kind of the later part of my fieldwork in New York City, um, the Leslie Lohman Museum uh, had a piece of Ferris Pussies on display uh, in the window, a 2018 piece called And So Are You, um, that really uh, I got to stand next to as I was waiting uh, for Eric Rain and David Hirsch, who become a big part of the story I tell about visual aids, who, of course, uh, was involved in the production of For the Record. And so for me, it's such a powerful piece and a way of kind of tying down a story to a particular object, which I think as a media scholar, as an archival scholar, I often begin stories uh, with objects. And so for me, this was a beautiful object uh, to think with and
1: through. Right. Um, you note in the book that fierce pussies, nostalgia and longing for lives and time lost do not merely invite uncritical, comfortable, restorative yearning, uh, and it does not make martyrs out of the dead but values the ordinariness of lives lost and, and reveals their complexities. Um And you've talked about this uh, a a little bit, but I would really like you to elaborate. The book really revolves around the mobilization of nostalgia and we'll we'll get into it in a minute. But for now, I want to stay with For the Record a little longer because I find it so fascinating. Um, How does critical engagement with nostalgia and valuing the everyday reveal about the HIV, its past, its influences on the present and the nature of Fierce Pussy's um, activist praxis? Yeah, I think... Uh, That's a great point because I think
2: uh, their nostalgia is, for me, right, the kind of fundamental concept around which this project came to revolve and the way in which, right, Fierce Pussy's invocation really calls forth, right, uh, the piece I quote of theirs from... The beginning of the chapter reads, right, uh, if he were alive today, he would be at this opening. If she were alive today, you'd be texting her right now. If he were alive today, he would be going gray, and so on and so forth, until we get to if he were alive today, he'd still be living with AIDS. And so for me, the way in which, right, they're calling forth a past, right? They're calling for people whose lives have been lost, for people who they love and have lost. Uh, Fierce Pussy came together first uh, in the context of doing art-based AIDS activism together, and they continue to work on AIDS as well as other issues that impact queer and trans lives. And so for me, right, they might be doing something, as you highlight, uh, that's simply nostalgic, right? Thinking about people lost, thinking about a past time or place, but they don't want to leave their dead in that place, right? They want to bring these people into our present. And they're thinking here, right, in a way about time that I found powerful and moving, it's not kind of a progressive narrative, right? The past and the future and the present are always in this kind of complex relationship. And they're calling on us, right, to bring these people into the present as a focal point and to do so, right, requires thinking about AIDS differently. I think, too, they're calling forth This kind of way in which popular narratives, including those right in exhibitions and films and other kinds of creative works, have really framed HIV/AIDS, at least in a North American context, as done, right, as a tragic epidemic of the queer past that maybe we can learn lessons from by which we can kind of wax poetic and long for these kind of powerful, beautiful artists and dancers and choreographers and directors and actors and all these kinds of creative folks that we wish were here in our present and we can imagine what kinds of work they might be doing or creating or engaging with. But they're asking us to do something Different, right? They're asking us to pay attention to what has and has not changed around HIV/AIDS, right? There is uh, no cure for AIDS. There's only more and better treatment, right, that might have saved some of these lives. But that's kind of, they refuse to let this kind of past be left. In the past, and they want us to think about the kind of resonances between different epidemic eras. And what I think that has to do in particular with nostalgia, right, is it's easy for us, I think, well, first, right, um, AIDS can seem, the AIDS epidemic can seem a very strange object for nostalgia. Why would we want to re- relive death and devastation and pain and loss and the decimation of so many people and especially so many queer and trans people? But we also, I think, in particular in ways that I talk about in great detail and think about my own position in relation to as someone who grew up in the 80s and the 90s and who wasn't working in these activist movements uh, in that moment, right? I was a child. I wasn't thinking about AIDS in that way. And I have, I think, as as a queer person, this kind of longing for this kind of activist past in which, right, queer politics seemed more radical. There seemed to be this kind of community cohesion. And there's, of course, all of this beautiful, powerful artwork and ephemera created by these activists and these artists. And so this kind of AIDS activism becomes itself an object of nostalgia. But building on work uh, by many scholars, including that of Svetlana Boym and others, right, who I owe a great deal to in terms of the thinking about different forms of nostalgia and what they do in the world, right? Fierce Pussy, for me, calls out that kind of nostalgia and asks us, to instead, right, think about what our kind of longing for the past is doing in the present and what that means for the present and future of AIDS. And I think that that's part of what I call vital nostalgia in the book, a kind of nostalgia that actually does powerful political work, rather than getting stuck in this desire to simply restore a past, whether a kind of real or an imagined past, right? A past that might actually have existed or one that we wish had and actually does something powerful uh, now. And so for me, I think that's one of the reasons that I included this piece uh, kind of as a point by which to kind of ground the bigger questions
1: that the book is engaging with. Right. Um, I found particularly moving uh, how you term curating and archiving as care work. Um, Why do you think HIV AIDS activism is rooted in care and and how can the meaning of care itself be expanded owing to archival and curatorial activism? Yeah, I love that question. I think my work rate
2: is in conversation more broadly. Uh, I wish um, I had had uh, him all Latinos and others, new work as I was writing and thinking, but I'm indebted to others, right? Including uh, Marty Fink, and my uh, collaborator, Michelle Caswell, and many different uh, Jennifer Douglas, and many different archival scholars and thinkers who are also engaging with concepts of care. And I think my own thinking about care uh, and some of this work comes up in uh, the third chapter, which looks at Visual Aid's archive project around missions of cure. And I think that's the chapter that deals most deeply with concepts of care explicitly. I, for me, I began thinking about care in relation to archives more explicitly in relation to thinking about feminist ethics of care models And the way in which they might ask us to re-engage our our projects in the archival field. I wrote with Michelle Caswell in 2016, a piece in Archivaria, on thinking about uh, feminist ethics of care and radical empathy and what they might bring to different kinds of archival relationships, right? Relationships. Uh, and there we center the archivist, right? But relationships between the archivist and the creator of the records, relationships between the archivist and the subject of the records, relationships between archivists and larger communities whose lives are implicated in those records, to name but a few, and others have greatly expanded that work. But I think that work got me thinking explicitly about the kind of labor that goes in to archives and the kinds of relationships uh, that happen in these spaces. And for me, talking about care is fundamentally important to drawing attention uh, to the labor of activists, uh, artists, other folks who created these records and cared for them and in some cases, right, found them an institutional archival home or were engaged in their preservation in making them accessible in community-based archives and spaces or some combination thereof and about thinking about the labor that archivists and librarians and curators do when engaging with these materials. And I think sometimes uh, when folks outside of the archives world talk about archives, they don't always think about the people who, and the processes by which uh archivists and archives work, and part of my goal here is drawing attention to how these archives came to be and how that shapes what stories can and cannot be told from within them, what records are are and are not held. And so for me, CARE is a way of framing that kind of engagement with maintenance, the kinds of relationships that enable these archives to be created, to survive, to be activated and reused. And so care really is at the center of this work. And I'm also indebted to, um, I was lucky enough to have Lisa Diedrich uh, as a uh, reviewer uh, for this book and, she really helped to draw forth for me uh, the need to make explicit that relationship with care, as I think in many ways it was implicit throughout my text, but to call out archival work and curatorial work as care work here. And for me, that's also work that I continue uh, to do in kind of collaborative thinking as well. Um, I'm working, and we can talk more about this later, but I'm working on a piece at the moment um, that looks at a milling list of folks who did AIDS caregiving work for people living with HIV and AIDS. Uh, and I'm interested in how... Uh, practices of care happened here in the context of AIDS and how those practices of care continue as we archive and use and engage um, with those materials, whether they're explicitly
1: about care or not. Right. That's, That's beautifully put. Um, You write, and I quote, archives have powerful roles to play in developing a holistic, complex cultural cure for HIV's harms. Um, Would you like to tell us what you mean by cultural cure and its significance for queer activism and information revolution today? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, I think
2: it was important to me in the arc of this book to think about notions of cure. Uh, which actually intersect with notions of care as well, right? Um, Care uh, is a fundamental part of cure, uh, at least in the kind of, well, I would actually say in the medical sense of cure and in the broader cultural sense. Uh, And the chapter you're asking about in particular, I think, is the third chapter, which looks at visual aids archive project, And Visual AIDS Archive Project is a community-based arts organization who, since the early 1990s, has collected and showcased and materially supported uh, artists living with HIV and AIDS and the estates of artists who have passed. And they are a really interesting archive for many reasons, but amongst that is that they're interested in collecting from anyone who self identifies as an artist, so whether or not they made a living or make a living as a professional artist, whether or not they've been collected or showcased in museums or galleries, uh, any artist who identifies as um, HIV positive. And so they have a fascinating collection, and for me, as I was uh, spending time in their office in Chelsea, in the archives, and talking to staff members, past and present, and to uh, the the collective, the committee of people who came together to found the archive project, especially Eric Rain, David Hirsch, and Frank Moore, amongst others, uh, I cure began to kind of emerge as a theme. There's a beautiful uh, introduction to a um, catalog for a 1996 show that Visual Aids put on from its archive project uh, called um, Arts Communities, Aids Communities. And this show, uh, which pulled work from the archive project, and highlighted the work uh, kind of two years into the project. Really, uh, Nick Debs, who was uh, involved in the early development of the archive and was at one point a executive director of Visual Aids, uh, Debs wrote, in this piece, a really beautiful description of what the archive could and could not do, thinking about its limits in the face of incurable illness, thinking about its kind of material limits within a community-based organization, but also calling attention to the importance and the timeliness of the work they were doing. And I was so struck that in an essay written before, the advent of more effective treatments for HIV uh, and AIDS, right, which can stem, uh, stop the development of HIV into AIDS if uh, one has access and the stability needed to maintain it, right, um, that saved uh, many people's lives, right. Uh, but that already in this moment before that, in the early 1990s, folks at visual AIDS were already thinking about the work they were doing as a kind of cure and thinking about the ways in which AIDS as a pandemic that is biomedical, it's a biomedical, it's a virus, right? But it's more than that. It's also a virus that exploits social fault lines, right? That Uh, works along other kinds of systemic oppression, colonialism, racism, sexism, other kinds of violence, that they were already thinking that cure would need to be something much broader than anything medicine could hope to offer, right? You would need to address an epidemic that is political, social, cultural, And biomedical, right? You wouldn't need to address it with a cure that also was as prodigious as that. And my work is also deeply indebted and engaged with disability thinkers uh, who've critiqued and embraced and dealt with the complexity of cure in relation to other kinds of experience. Uh, in particularly, er, Yoon Kim's work and Eli Clare's work, were uh, fundamentally shaped my own thinking about the complexity of cure. And for me, it was really important to think about the role, the kind of both the possibilities and limitations of what archives can do in the face of a ongoing pandemic. Right. Uh, These archives alone are never going to be enough to provide a cure for HIV, whether in any sense of the word, right, biomedical, political, cultural, but they are a fundamental part of developing a more holistic notion of what a cure might mean and of countering the kinds of violence that can be deeply embedded in kind of limited notions of medical cure, right? That look at solutions only in the sector of biomedicine uh, that often rely on large pharmaceutical companies, right? Uh, And that might never be accessible, right, Uh, because they are profit-driven and that there's a kind of, there can be, as Eli Clare, Alison Kiefer, Injun Kim, and others have written, right, there can be a kind of violence embedded in those notions of medical cure, right, because they call for the eradication of illness or disability rather than thinking about The kind of complex value of those experiences and identities and the ways in which, right, even if tomorrow there was a vaccine for HIV, uh, the ways in which HIV and AIDS are stigmatized, the ways in which people have experienced and lived them uh, will mark them, even if the virus itself uh, could be overcome. And in reality, right, we know that none of those cures would be easily accessible to all. And so for me, I wanted to think about cure in this book, but it's very intentional that the book neither begins nor ends with cure, right? Rather, cure is part of the kind of narrative we need to think about when we think about AIDS, Uh, but it's only part of that kind of larger narrative arc and the book moves forward right after that to talk about notions of undetectability, which again, thinking about biomedicine is kind of the best we've got, right? Where Through treatment, uh, people living with HIV are able to uh, lower their viral loads to levels that are undetectable by a conventional test and therefore uh, to make HIV non transmittable. And so, right, that again, right, is not cure, but is part of the movements towards and thinking about these kinds of structures that shape the contemporary AIDS environment. And then the book goes on to talk about the circulation of uh, materials online and notions of virus and virality, as well as the intersections of AIDS archives with COVID-19. And as we enter other kinds of pandemics and their documentation, what these kinds of AIDS archives mean and can do in the present. And so for me, Cure is a fundamentally important concept to this book, but it can't be the kind of endpoint. And I want us to think about Cure as something much broader than is often uh, kind of popularly talked about um, outside of disability studies, right? I think often when we talk about Cure, we're talking only about medicalized notions of cure rather than these kinds of more prodigious cultural cures that take into account, right, the way that things like viruses are never simply just biomedical phenomena, but the ways in which uh, they're
0: culturally embedded and coded and historically specific. This episode is brought to you by sax.com.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was nodding my head throughout. Um, as I was reading your book, I was, I was curious to know more about archival ethnography, which you carried out between um, 2015 and 2016, and then again in 2018 and 19 in New York. Um, could you t- take us through your journey of archival ethnography, its pleasures and challenges, and, and how ethnography of this nature enables storytelling with an intellectual and affective purpose? Yes, I think
2: um, archival ethnography really, I think, is a powerful methodology for being able to think about the archives as a subject and as a site, and to really center it as the object of analysis. It allows us to think about the records themselves, but also the systems and the people who are entangled with them. Uh, And to think about everything from the aesthetic dimensions of records to uh, the nuances of information system design and classification. And so for me, archival ethnography in practice uh, looked like the opportunity to think very prodigiously about what an archive is. Uh this book deals, right, with um things that I think everyone would uh accept as an archive, right, large institutional uh actors like the New York Public Library or uh, New York University's Fales Library and Special Collections, right? These uh, libraries and archives that collect historical documents uh, to tell a particular story whether about downtown art movements in the case of the downtown collection at Bales or in the case of the archives and manuscripts division at the New York Public Library to tell stories about activism uh, in New York City and beyond and right uh they're largely paper-based collections. Uh, they're organized in very uh, in ways that adhere to archival standards. Uh, but we also have in this book uh, things like uh, social media accounts, uh, Tumblr pages, and uh, Facebook conversations, uh, materials that are still held within people's private collections, in their closets and underbeds and in attics. And this book, for me, is a fundamental way to kind of think about what the archive is and what it does and what an AIDS archive is and can be. Uh, And though it does fundamentally primarily deal with these kinds of archives, archival Ethnography is a methodology that centers the archive, but is kind of prodigious enough to think broadly about what the archive is and what constitutes it and who its interlocutors are. And so in practice, I was uh, so incredibly lucky to have become part of these worlds in which I was writing and thinking about I... Uh, just taking visual aids as an example, um, was lucky enough to interview, uh, they've always had a small staff uh, to interview staff members past and present to interview uh, Artists and curators and writers and collectors who had been involved in the beginning and in the development of the archive project. Uh, And some of those interviews, right, happened over many months. Uh, Some of them, right, were just brief one time encounters. But I was privileged enough to get to hear stories uh, of work that people were deeply were and are deeply passionate about that enabled them to feel that they were doing something in the face of an incurable epidemic that was transforming every vector of their existence. And not just to feel they were doing something, to actually do something, right? To be able to do something concrete, to stem The death of at least a certain kind of death right the death of an artistic career of an artistic legacy and to still be doing that work right in powerful ways right what's so fascinating about visual aids is not just that they did this collecting but that they continue to think about how to utilize Some of the kind of notable artists in their collections and notable work in their collections to draw attention to contemporary artists, to artists who might get less art world recognition uh, to contemporary issues in the pandemic and to use art as a way to engage with AIDS and to think about AIDS and its intersections with other forms of injustice and oppression. And so for me, archival ethnography is a way to both uh, be able to do research in an archive, but to actually moreover, tell the story of the archive itself, right? I spent time as a researcher in all these spaces looking at and engaging with collections, but I also got to look at the tools and processes they use to talk to the people who built and have been important in their development. And so for me, archival ethnography is a way of bringing together all of those pieces and I hope a way of doing my own kind of care work uh the kind of care work we were talking about a few minutes ago right by bringing together and preserving and hearing and showcasing the kinds of stories that uh fundamentally shape these
1: archives and what has been and could be done with them right That's that's beautiful, archival ethnography as as care work. Um, Yeah. Um, In the first chapter of your book, you begin by highlighting a particular poster that reads, Your Nostalgia is Killing Me, which is created by Vincent Chevalier with Ian Bradley Perrin in 2013 for Toronto-based AIDS organization, AIDS Action Now's Poster Virus Campaign. Um, The poster became viral on social media particularly Facebook, through ACT UP uh, NY's alumni Facebook group and made possible a critical intergenerational dialogue between AIDS activists, uh, which you interrogate to explore and gauge the significance of contemporary ACT UP nostalgia and what it means for the present as well as the future of HIV AIDS. Um, Could you talk about how the critique of nostalgia, um, which you contend, and and this is fascinating, is distinct from anti-nostalgia, and critique of the appropriation of ACT UP's aesthetics that was gen- generated by the circulation of this poster on social media was also a critique of structural uh, inequity and more. Yeah, and I
2: think there's uh, so much richness in uh, the object, right? Your nostalgia is claiming kind of becomes the center point of an entire chapter. It's a really engaging and powerful piece, right, can created by two activists, uh two artists and thinkers, uh, two HIV positive men, right, uh who were in their late twenties and early thirties at the time, right? And away, right, they're talking about a particular kind of generational dynamic in within queer communities, right? And particularly around ACT UP. And I think ACT UP gets so much of the attention uh, when we're talking about uh, the past of HIV AIDS in the US and uh, in Canada as well. But I think especially, right, like it's often comes to be the stand-in for all of AIDS activism rather than uh, the kind of particular and powerful and important uh, piece of that kind of network and environment and space that it was. Um, And Act of New York in particular, right, becomes – more often perhaps than any other Act Up chapter, the centerpiece of that uh, kind of work, right? There are uh, major films that look at Act Up New York. Uh, I heard a rumor at least once that somebody was going to make a television show about Act Up New York. Uh, It was featured in things, uh, in popular media examples, right? Like Pose, uh, we get an Act Up Action, Uh, and it's also right a focal point of scholarship on AIDS, and so it became, in some ways, impossible not to talk about ACT UP. And part of what's interesting about Anne and Vincent's poster is they were both. It does have an image of ACT UP within the poster, a historical image, and. Then there's an image of Justin Bieber in an ACT UP t shirt, a more contemporary image. Uh, But I don't think they saw their critique as entirely about active nostalgia, but very much in the kind of social media discourse around the poster that became the center point. And I think ACT UP occupies a really important space in what people are. Nostalgic for about AIDS activism, about direct action, AIDS activism in particular, right? This kind of flashy on the street activism, which even ACT UP, right, did many more things than just that. And not all of it, right, Uh, was so visually engaging or big and loud. But I think it really stands in right for what's so appealing to a younger generation of queer folks maybe even multiple younger generations of queer folks right those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s and then uh those who uh, are just um becoming adults uh in their own right now, right, all of us who've lived with AIDS as part of our cultural milieu, and I think there's a way in which, right, like, ACT UP seems, especially for those of us who uh, kind of, I'll speak, I guess, for myself here, right, I uh, came out in... The early 2000s as queer, the kind of queer politics I encountered uh, did not seem to hold the same kind of radical move, right? They were often embedded in professionalized organizations. They were often about issues around marriage or access to the military that didn't seem to have the same kind of radical. And there wasn't, for me at least, some of the same kind of urgency there. And then we also have this kind of like nineteen ninety chic aesthetics uh, that are so fundamentally tied to art collectives and video collectives that were either formally part, or adjacent to, or sprung from. ACT UP's breaks, and we have this idea, right, that ACT UP really mobilized in a powerful way. It brought together a community to do with a kind of, what seems at least, right, in retrospect, a singular purpose to work together, to be in this beautiful space together, right? And folks who were in that space, many of them, right, talk Longingly about the experience of being in those rooms of being, of having this kind of deep purpose that was shared, of being in this intense, powerful experience together, right. Um, one activist described it as a tsunami feeling, right And just being in this space doing powerful work together. And of course there were an R difficult and awful parts of that, but I think it's sometimes possible to overlook that or possible to see as well what's so like powerful and compelling about that experience. And I think there was around this poster a real resistance to the concept of nostalgia from uh, folks who... Had been active, active in ACT UP in the nineteen eighties and early nineteen nineties, who were like, who saw nostalgia right as something, as about a kind of rosy colored glasses, as a look back that ignored the kinds of grief and pain and failure and loss that were also a part of that experience. And right uh and a desire right to like only rewive like the aesthetics of that past and not to actually engage with in a deep way with the politics of it, and so I think Vincent and Ian took some of the kinds of brunt of that, but their poster really became a focal point for a larger conversation about what where and how we do intergenerational memory transmission around uh, experiences like AIDS. What is particular to a generation or to folks who were in a room? What is What can cross our experience? How do we have conversations with one another? And what in Vincent and Ian's poster did Uh, sometimes in very contentious or petty ways, right, uh, enabled some of those conversations to open up and to really, uh, it became a focal point for thinking about whether AIDS was in fact something, AIDS activism was something one could even have nostalgia for, which I definitely think it does. And I think what was missing from some of these conversations was a kind of new ones in thinking about what nostalgia is and what it does right as i think nostalgia has been long derided by uh popular commentators and by scholars as well right as that kind of naive rosy colored looking back rather than something that can do uh Powerful political work. And I think, and that flattens, right, the nuance of there being different kinds of nostalgia. And so, talking about nostalgia for ACT UP through the lens of this particular poster enables me to begin to interrogate and engage what a kind of what it means to have nostalgia for ACT UP in particular, and what it means for our understanding of HIV-AIDS now, and for what the future of the epidemic
1: can and will be. Right. Um, We'll stay on the topic of nostalgia, because that's at the heart of of your book. You write that the poster demanded a more vital practice of nostalgia. You emphasize the the power of vital nostalgia and its critical importance for contemporary HIV-AIDS activism. Um, Could you talk about your conceptualization of vital nostalgia and how it can resist contemporary class, gendered, and racialized structural inequities in the present? Sure. So for me, as I began
2: thinking about nostalgia, as an object, right? I'm. I mentioned Svetlana Lana Williams' work earlier, but also work uh, by Ray Cashman and others, right? Has looked, um, and Kater- Katerina Neumayer and uh, Nadia Etia uh, amongst others, right? Has looked at and reclaimed uh, this kind of bad object that was nostalgia to think more critically about what it is and what it does and my work is part of that kind of vein. Um, Svetlana Boyum in particular, right, I'm deeply indebted to for conceptualizing this kind of uncritical, restorative nostalgia and a more reflective nostalgia, right, But doesn't just seek to recreate the past, but seeks to engage with that past critically and with intention. And that's part of the kinds of origins of vital nostalgia, which I'm thinking about here, which I describe as a, kind of generative practice for interrogating, addressing, and repairing structural power inequities that's grounded in a longing for a past time or a past space. And what interests me about nostalgia is how it allows us to examine the present through our ongoing relationship To the past. And for me, I wanted to look in this book at how uh, activists, artists, curators, and archivists are engaged in these practices of nostalgia, how they're using nostalgia as a means to critically engage people with not just the past of AIDS, but with its present as well. And I think that's particularly important, right, as we're in this moment where uh, we're at this conjuncture of pandemics and uh, the AIDS epidemic is far from done uh, and it continues, right, to unfold and intersect with the many other pandemics we're living with, including COVID and monkeypox, to name just two, right, but I think what's fundamentally important about vital nostalgia is that it pays attention not just to the ways in which we long for a past time or space, but also to the particularly kind of human relationships and longing and longing for lo- for people, as much as for times and places. And so for me, a vital nostalgia is one that is critical, that pays attention to uh, ambiguities, to oppression, to violence in the past, as much as to what was beautiful and powerful and pleasurable about the past and so it's a way of looking back but to look forward at the same time and i think i mentioned a few minutes ago but i think visual some of visual aids work is offers some really powerful examples of this right alex Vialho, who was uh the program director at visual aids uh he described for me uh, how Looking Back to Look Forward was a strategy that they used, uh, for example, using an image of Keith Herring by one of his partners, Juan Rivera, as a way to draw audiences in to a larger digital video that dealt with the contemporary pandemic and particularly with issues of HIV criminalization and so I think that Vital Nostalgia is this kind of very strategic deployment of this longing for this past time, for this past space for the people who occupied it to do powerful political work in the present that might enable us to enact and imagine a more just present but also a different kind of future and for me i look at vital nostalgia here in the context of archiving and curating uh and i wonder about whether uh what other spaces the concept uh, might be generative uh, for thinking through uh, and what its limits might be in other spaces as well. The nostalgia for me enabled me to talk with nuance about this kind of relationship we have to the AIDS past, but to frame it fundamentally as asking questions about our present
1: and future at the same time. Yeah, that's that's extremely nuanced um, and powerful. It's it's so easy to dismiss nostalgia as as lazy and apolitical. Um, and your book yes, helps and re- it's,
2: it's kind of <laughs> it has right leading, right? I think that also many of the kind of critiques of nostalgia come from leftist scholars and Marxist scholars, right? Who are rightly kind of living in this like Reagan era. Uh, rise of the right and it's like nostalgia for a past that never existed for like this beautiful uh, 1950s family right that many historians have uh, rightly critiqued as you know only existing for a long lines of race along lines of class and never really quite existing in the way in which we imagine it existing at all. Right. Um, and so there are very valid reasons to critique nostalgia, but I am always wary of, uh, I think queer scholars have taught us the value of looking at uh, bad feelings and um thinking about what they actually uh do, and thinking about them as never simply right bad as always much more nuanced and complex than that, and so I think nostalgia deserves that same
1: attention, absolutely, yeah. Um, You write in the second chapter of your book that archival activism is central to act-ups organizing and that that those who were minoritized in various ways and or those who experienced intra group marginalization committed themselves to documentation as an act of resistance, as a political act of resistance. Um, Could you elaborate on this for our audience? Absolutely. I think
2: part of what... I find so interesting about ACT up though uh of course right it is uh maybe uh I think I had some resistance to writing a book that dealt so heavily with ACT up and it dealt so heavily with New York because they do get the lion's share of attention right uh in talking and thinking about AIDS and its activism, but part of what's uh powerful about this story is the way in which activists uh, were creating records and collecting records and thinking about those records both as tools to uh, do the social change work uh, in their present but also thinking about the preservation of those records and the access to those records uh, for posterity and I think There's some interesting temporal elements, right? To working in the context of a pandemic uh, gives great urgency, right? When you see the people around you getting sick and dying, there's an urgency to doing this kind of archival work. And we've seen that, right? Uh, It looks different now, but we see that too with COVID, right? There were a million COVID documentation projects that sprung up almost immediately. And I think as it becomes uh, endemic, uh, whatever that might mean in a COVID context, right? uh, it will be interesting to see what becomes such kind of documentation projects. But I think what happened here in the context of Active New York is so fundamentally tied to the work in particular of women uh, in ACT UP who uh, may not have been a majority in numbers but were they brought some of the expertise, the experience, the power, the energy that sustained and really created uh, what we think of as ACT UP. And I think that many of those uh, women, many of whom uh, are lesbian identified and had simultaneous involvement with the lesbian history archives in Brooklyn, uh, is particularly interesting because not only did these women bring these long kind of these critical lenses, this knowledge, this strategic expertise as activists but many of them brought community archives, knowledge and expertise from their work uh, with the Lesbian History Archives as well. And so Maxine Wolf and Polly Thistle and others, right, really brought that lens and that knowledge and that thinking about the importance of access uh, for community members To their records and the importance of having a record at all. And so, uh, women in particular were leaders in many of uh, the kind of video collectives that did lots of the documentation work. Uh, Many of them were avidly collecting documentation. But these women also uh, were concerned, in particular, that their stories, that the stories of people marginalized within these movements right, uh, would be lost. Uh, and they were interested in the ways in which those histories were contextualized. Maxine Wolf, uh, who I was lucky enough to interview for this project, uh, talked extensively about this. Uh, she uh, donated her materials to on ACT UP to the Lesbian History Archives because AIDS history for her is part of lesbian history and needs to be thought of uh, through that lens. And right there, it becomes fundamental to the debate over where ACT UP's materials should belong, and that, of course. Uh, While well, it's a closed debate in some extent, right, the organizational records uh, largely went to the New York Public Library. It is not a closed conversation about where other materials will belong, right? Um, there's been a kind of resurgence of interest and engagement with Act of New York's Latino Caucus, uh, and many of those records, right, have not found themselves into an institutional home and whether an institutional home for them is even desired is a bigger question. But these questions about where ACT records can and do belong are open questions and whether they belong and are better served in community-based spaces uh, or in larger institutional archives. And I think there's never an easy or simple answer to that question. There are, significant advantages and disadvantages that shape the archive and the stories that can be told from it uh, by being situated within either place. But I think uh, part of my part of what was so interesting to me in the kind of conversations I had uh, with activists who were involved in these kinds of documentation processes was the way that they thought critically about who would be um, erased or marginalized and what parts of the history of ACT UP would and would not be told and were fundamentally, Maxine Wolfe, right, was fundamentally invested in documenting the work of the Women's Caucus uh, because she feared that that work would not be centered, that it would be erased because she saw uh, what she perceived to be examples of that happening already as ACTA moved between workspaces uh, in seeing what was valued uh, and in her own kind of lived experience within those activist realms. And so for her, the answer became to collect and to ensure that those records ended up in a place where they would be contextualized in a particular way, right? Within feminist history, within lesbian history, within queer history. And so and gender is just one kind of uh, dynamic, right? That's shaping who did the documentation and therefore what we have. And I think part of what fascinated me and some of what I got to ask the folks I interviewed was about whether these kind of dominant narratives of the AIDS crisis and of AIDS activism are limited by the archives themselves, or whether there's something else happening? Is it that there are, are not documentation in the same way of groups uh, led by um, led largely by activists of color? Uh, by gender non-conforming and trans folks, Uh, what by Indigenous uh, actors, right? What is, is it that there are not these records or is it something else? And part of what was fascinating to me was that many of the activists I interviewed described it as being shaped yes, there are limits in what has been saved, but it's also the limits of the dominant narratives that we enter these archives with as researchers, as media makers, that shape what we're actually looking for there. And I think many of these folks who experience kind of intergroup marginalization in ACT UP and have experienced marginalization again in the ways that AIDS is narrativized uh, perhaps were rightly. Very concerned that they would be erased or marginalized again uh, as these stories were and are being told, and so I think, right, uh, they the stakes of documentation are different as someone who experienced those kinds of marginalization than perhaps
1: uh, for folks in more dominant positions. Right. Um, You also talk very powerfully about die-ins performed by ACT UP in the book. Um, Could you talk about die-ins performed by ACT UP activists and and how it challenged dominant narratives that aids is history and how vital uh, nostalgia was mobilized through performative protests in the form of uh, die-ins? Sure. Um, Die-ins are, of course, a practice
2: uh, very much associated uh, with ACT UP and it's uh, the part of ACT UP that did this more theatrical, flashy, on the street kind of activism, right? Uh, Susan Foster has described die as a kind of part of a choreography of protest. Uh, and, right, they're a practice in which activists lay their bodies down strategically, right, to... Symbolize uh, loss and devastation. There's, of course, strategic components to that, as Foster has powerfully described, right? Uh, the way in which bodies are interlinked, uh, the, the limpness of bodies can make them harder for uh, police and other authorities to relocate, providing a kind of protection. And there's, of course, uh, something very visual and theatrical and uh, powerful and symbolic about these kinds of practices. And I think, right, um, and I too right, associate them with a kind of active action from the 80s and early 90s, these large numbers of protesters. Uh, but part of what uh, excited me so much about This particular kind of constellation of archives that I was so lucky to walk into between the New York Public Library, Visual Aids, and the fields was the way they're entangled, but particularly the ways in which they were being actively engaged by the people who had created and cared for the records, right? The way in which activists are invested did not end, right, at the moment of records creation or even when those records entered an archive. The Diane reference, right, was held uh, at the opening of an exhibition I talk quite a bit about in the book uh, called Why We Fight After. A speech by Vito Russo, uh, and that document exhibition right uh, had the word uh, "remembering" in its title, and as you reference, uh, contemporary ACT UP activists, right, as ACT UP in New York City and in a few other places, is a active ongoing organization. They actually, in New York City, uh, still meet at the center, just a few floors up uh, from where uh, they began in 1987. And uh, there are some folks who've been continuously involved and then uh, folks who found their way into ACT UP and into the AIDS activist movement uh, much later. And so they're still actively engaged with this history, and at the uh, on the opening night of this exhibition, which showcased posters and um, T-shirts and buttons and ephemera and other records uh, from the New York Public Library's AIDS activist collections, they staged a protest, arguing that AIDS is not history. Right that. Simply looking at the past of the epidemic is never going to be enough, uh, and that they're never going to stop engaging as long as HIV/AIDS continues. Uh, They're going to continue to be invested and to be working in all of these spaces and to be thinking right about how AIDS intersects with other illnesses, with other kinds of social injustices, right? uh, Act up. More recently, right, has worked on uh, access uh, to COVID uh, vaccines, on access uh, to medication, on access to generic drugs, uh, and is invested in right dialogues that are emerging around monkeypox as well. And so they're very invested, right, in their history, but also in showcasing that that history is not over, right? And that we are still living with and alongside AIDS and that we need to think about it that way and we need to mobilize that history as part of a kind of contemporary reckoning and engagement and energy. And so for me, that's fundamentally a practice of vital nostalgia, right? A engagement with one's past and a mobilization of the power of ACT UP as an organization and as a political identity to do contemporary work, right? Um, And to put, to draw attention to those kinds of practices. And so I think that Diane is really one of the most powerful uh, moments of intervention and engagement um, of activists with their records. And one of the things that was really unique, right, they're powerful. I lived at the time when I was doing this research in LA, which also has beautiful and powerful and important AIDS archives, but there hadn't been this kind of deep engagement, uh, especially from kind of activist communities themselves with those records in a way in which I saw here. And part of what motivated me and interested me so much about this project was that kind of ongoing relationship activists have to their records and their histories and the ways that those shape uh, what they can do now and how they're doing it and how they're learning from and engaging with their own past
1: to do that work. Right. Um, this has been absolutely fascinating. I could ask you a million more questions on the book. Um, but I am also mindful of, of time. So um, just one more question before we let you go. Um, and you've told us a little bit about, about this. Um, what would you like to tell us um, a little more about what you're currently working on? Sure. Yeah, I think there's a few
2: things. Um, some of the work that came out of the book and happened alongside the book uh, was uh, collaborative work uh, in part with Kate McKinney, who's a media historian um, and wrote a brilliant book called Information Activism. Uh, and Kate and I together uh, co-edited a special issue of First Monday, on AIDS and digital media because we saw this kind, this gap that really needed to be addressed in thinking about how AIDS grew up alongside digital media, how AIDS activists have and do use digital media, the way in which contemporary media regimes and surveillance impacts people with living with HIV. And I continue to be uh, interested both in work with Kate and in work uh, with some of my students, including Claire McDonald, to think about AIDS and digital media together. Uh, Claire and I have been working on a piece I mentioned earlier that will come out in feminist media histories around AIDS Info BBS and the caregivers mailing list it spawned. I'm also uh, at the very beginning of explorations of what might become a book, uh, thinking about uh, buyers clubs, which begin Dallas Buyers Club being the example I think folks have probably heard of um, the movie starring Matthew McConaughey um, but buyers clubs emerge out of um, HIV AIDS as organizations to transmit information and to access resources right namely drugs that are were unavailable uh, unapproved or too costly and uh, and to learn about different kinds of treatment possibilities uh, in this period in the 80s and early 90s where uh, the mainstream Mayo medical community had little to offer uh, and where many activists and others felt the need to uh, kind of take it upon themselves to become the experts and to find Uh, the information and resources they needed, Um, but buyer's clubs don't end uh, with AIDS. We see them in an HIV AIDS specific context reemerge in the era of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP uh, when uh, it's not yet uh, covered or accessible to people in different countries. Uh, We see then buyer's clubs emerge around other kinds of illness, around hepatitis C uh, in particular, again, when treatments are unavailable or too costly. And so I'm very interested in the ways in which, uh, again, activists used and mobilized uh, information and uh, resources and technologies at their disposal uh, to try to improve uh, the lives uh, of folks around them. Um, And so I think uh, the other thread of uh, the work that began in this book that continues for me is this thinking about labor and archives, um, perhaps in a more literal sense. um, Here, uh, I, Just got a um, Institute for Museum and Library Services grant to begin a three-year project that will look at um, how uh, internships and fellowships have been used as a means uh, to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion in the library and archives profession. Uh, So thinking again about issues around labor. and uh, justice in an archival context as well Um, so it feels surreal to be at the end of um, that project and to be thinking about new projects but I think the work in this book fundamentally uh, provides the foundation for all of the avenues I see myself going
1: down uh, in the future. Yeah absolutely these are projects of critical importance, and I'd be very interested to see how your future uh, projects build on this one. Um, Thank you for this incredible... Thank you so much. uh,
2: Thank you for the thoughtful questions and the opportunity to talk about parts of the book um, that I feel like haven't uh, gotten
1: as much attention and care, and I um, appreciate your thoughtfulness and engagement. Thank you so much. Um, I think anyone who reads your Books should also read them in conjunction with um, the way you speak about about this book. Um, thank you. Thank you so much.